1: Adafi Okporo is an author and activist who successfully sought asylum in the U.S. after years of violent persecution in Nigeria because of his sexuality. Since then, he's made it his mission to not only speak out against the ongoing violence faced by LGBTQ people in Nigeria, but to help those displaced by violence build new lives as close to the American dream as possible. We explore his relationship to the idea and the reality of America, the importance of pleasure in our understanding of freedom his refusal to participate in the spectacle of Black death and trauma, making space for his hopes, dreams, and desires, and his complicated and evolving understanding of what it means to be a Black African man in America. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being Black with Adafiak Poro. Adafe, thank you so much for being here and for making time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners. How, how's your heart?
0: I feel like my heart is in a good position right now. Um, it's between a happy place and feeling like the world, a lot is happening at the same time to find joy in spite of all this makes me feel like my heart is in a good place right now.
1: How are you finding joy? Or where are you finding joy?
0: You know, I think growing up, I never saw that in my childhood, I had a lot of fun experiences because um, I overbodied myself with my sexual orientation and my experience as a refugee that I never took the opportunity to experience the joy of being a human being. And I feel like I'm finding joy in like the most little things in life right now because I realize that when I am too ambitious or when I'm planning for big goals in the future, it causes anxiety and I fail to live in the present moment. So I think I find joy in everything I'm doing, just being a human being, knowing that there are trials and tribulations, but you just have to remain happy and excited about everything that you do on a day-to-day basis.
1: You know, I had a conversation recently with Karetha uh, Mitchell, who's a scholar and, and professor in the, in the US, and we were talking about gratitude. And I was really struck by something she said that this, this joy-finding exercise, or an exercise of gratitude or a practice of gratitude is part of how we honor the hardness of life, right? It's part of how we make sure that we're um, paying our respects to those who don't have a chance to find joy. Um, and so that, that kind of resonates, what you're saying resonates, right? This, this finding of the joy, this need to hold on
0: to it somehow. You know, as you say that, I, I was just vibrating. It took me a lot of time to get here. The struggle is really real. But in our communities, especially as people who are marginalized, we tend to put the struggle above joy. Because when you're experiencing joy, you're just being yourself, freestyling. People are like, you're being pretentious. If you are like, like taking every moment as it comes and taking a step, people are like, you're too laid back. there's an expectation that for you to experience joy, you have to have like a Mercedes, a big house, like there's an expectation of when that comes, that is when you are going to be happy or you're going to be excluded from the community because you have X, Y, and Z, like Beyonce and GZ. So I feel like we don't have to wait for anything to experience joy. And when we experience joy, the expectation of others should not weigh it down. Like, oh, I'm being too happy. There's a struggle. I need to dress like this. I need to behave like I am part of the struggle. I think that those expectations kind of make it hard for marginalized people to experience joy. It's like crab in a barrel. Calm down. Calm down. Calm down. Don't go anywhere else.
1: You know, I think that we're all still feeling the fire of last summer you know, these global uprisings and um, that sparked so many conversations, a little action from some people. Um, But I think that we've all kind of felt, seen, borne witness to um, the mental and emotional toll um, that that has been taken on Black people over the past year and a half. How are you navigating um, this current moment that, that we're living through and and how are you finding an outlet for whatever might be more difficult for you to feel and to deal with?
0: Thank you very much for that question. I don't think that people usually ask me that question because, um, because I came to the U.S. as a refugee people always want to know about my pain rather than how I'm being able to navigate those other areas of my life. Um, I feel first of all that it takes a great deal of self-awareness to recognize that you might be struggling through everything that is happening because it's just a lot that sometimes you can't really figure out what it is that is causing the stress. And as someone who's a survivor of trauma, I've tend to find some coping mechanism that really works. Because trauma comes into your body and it distresses from your heartbeats, the heart rate, to your mental cognition, your strength to be able to stay focused and continue in life. It's really hard when a traumatic experience kind of goes into your body. And sometimes these traumatic patterns happen when you see people that are in the same struggle with you being affected by something. Like the death of George Floyd is traumatic for me as a black person in America because it makes me realize that I too can be that person. And that just stresses you like a lot. Uh, My first response was like, I'm going to dread protests. I'm going to rally around to try and raise our voice for the Black Lives Matter protests, then even doing that, I recognize that my body is more stressed than it needs to be. And I think that one of the ways I've tried to take care of myself is one, I went off social media for eight months last year, and I reduced the amount of times I see things that are traumatic to me. Because the less I see things that are triggering, the more I'm able to handle the trauma within my body. And I stopped watching a lot of movies or series that have a lot of violence because when I see those violence, it reminds me of like the kind of violence that affect people of color. And thirdly, I'm not really a spiritual person in the sense, aside from Christian religion, I used to be a Christian. But now I'm no no longer a Christian. So I'm trying to find spirituality so that I can feel like there is something other than myself which I can acknowledge to be in control of some things. Because when you feel like you have to control your own destiny in a country whereby you don't usually have opportunity as a person of color, it could be really stressing. So spirituality through the sense of like, yoga, meditation, and understanding that there is a higher sense of purpose and being other than myself, it made to struggle less. Um, um, there was an Holocaust survivor that wrote A man Search for Meaning. He said that uh, suffering ceases to be suffering when you find meaning. And I feel like I have meaning in my life because the work I do is like helping other people to reduce the struggle that they are facing as refugees, as displaced persons. So those are the ways in which I use to like heal myself. It's like knowing that I am being of service to other refugees. I'm taking care of myself. I'm reducing the amount of violence I'm seeing in the world. I'm meditating. I'm listening to myself. That is how I'm able to center myself in spite of all the crisis that is happening because There is too much and there's little resource you could give and still be a human being and live life and find happiness and every other thing that is involved with being a human being which is a lot
1: we're going to definitely get to the work that the important work that you're doing i want there's two things that i've just scribbled down very quickly that i'm hoping i can draw you out on I think what you're speaking to when you say that you went off social media for eight months and that when you stopped watching television and film and what have you, that was violent or, and I think what you're alluding to is particularly um, that featured Black death. What I think what you're speaking to here is a refusal to participate, right? Or A refusal to, because we live in a machine that kind of like, Puts Black Death on our plates all the time, right? It's really hard to get away from, and I think what you're talking about is a refusal to participate in that, which I really, I really love. That really lit something up in me. That because I think that as as Black people, sometimes we feel a responsibility to bear witness, right? Because these are our siblings, our our brothers, our sisters, and to turn away from that can some I know for me can sometimes feel like a bit of guilt, um, and so I love that that you're kind of vocalizing a, a refusal. Uh, choosing of the self as well I choose to survive.
0: So we 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 don't ask ourselves who is judging you are you the one judging yourself like feeling like if I don't raise my voice to this issue or do you feel a strong sense that other people are judging that at this time Josh should have a voice in this issue or you are feeling like if Josh doesn't have a voice in this issue then I'm not doing enough for the community. But as they say, as a community, that means sometimes you will be the one with the most vocal point of view. Other times you will take a step back for other people to have a, a vocal point of view. If not, then it's no longer a community. It's just like one person is speaking on behalf of everybody. So when I choose myself, at that time, I'm saying that, hey, you, you have strength too. Why don't you speak up for this issue? Let me rest so that when I come back, I can be effective and you can go and rest so that we can be rotating around ourselves and we will be very effective because if only one person is trying to like go hunt for the entire community, one day there will be no energy in their muscles to run from the, 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 they are the predator, you become a prey to the predator one because they're weak, they're tired. You don't have the energy to run around and attack.
1: That's a really beautiful way to to think about it and and to act in community as well, to have an understanding that, and and to feel that you can, right? That's part of it as well. If if I step back, will someone else step forward? So, and yes, we know that's true, right? Because we live among and within a beloved community. Uh, i I hadn't really thought about that before that that it's uh we're kind of quietly sometimes tacitly stepping back and forth um yeah there's a beautiful i just popped into my head someone wrote if you if you guard me while i fantasize i'll hold you while you rest there's there's a, a similar thing right
0: I like that. You know, also, I was being selfish when I made the decision to go off social and all those things too, because I just won a prize of about 217000 and I sold my book for a lot of money. And I have almost half a million dollars in contracts in less than three weeks, and I've never had that kind of amount of money before in my life. I grew up very poor. Like my family, we all lived in a small room. We shared a public bathroom. So it's like for my mental health, I was like, how do I undo this amount of money I, that have come into my life? Like, because I was still living like a poor person because the trauma of being a poor person continues for. Your entirety. So I didn't realize that I've broken the cycle of poverty for myself and my family. Then how can I reshape the narrative so that I don't continue to exist in the form I was before the person I am now? So in the process of redefining myself, I needed to pull away for some time so that I could think about what are the kind of content I've been posting. Am I still shouting when I already have a table that I should be explaining in the table? Or Am I still trying to get a table? So I discovered that I already have an audience, I already have a platform. Social media does not really define my platform. So where will I have the best representation of the community going forward? So being able to strategize means that I have to be silent for some time so that some of those content that I used to post before can go down so that when I resurface, I can be able to say things not as someone who's trying to drag a seat in the table, but as someone who has a seat in the table, kind of like rebuilding that platform.
1: Mm, that is fascinating, absolutely. As your situa- Sometimes our situations change so quickly that we forget that our situation has changed and that our positionality has changed, right? That we come from a, that's a wonderful, wonderful insight. Um, and the second thing that you said that, I, if you wanna talk about it, I, w- I would love to hear more. You said that you used to be a Christian, but that you're not anymore. Can you talk about more about that decision?
0: I grew up in a uh, religious family. We are Christians. I used to go to church with my grandmother. When I was in my teenagers, I became a pastor of a church. So um, I preach about the Christian religion, but religion was an opportunity for me to suppress who I am on the inside because on the outside, it presented a facade, like this is a borough, a pastor and things like that, and not a gay person who can express his femininity as well as his masculinity. And when I stopped going to the church, I was realizing that I still needed some teachings from the church because the church also taught me to be like an upright person to find community to be resilient, and some stories in the Bible apply to life. But I noticed that the Christian religion does not save me anymore because it withered me from learning other experiences outside from the Christian religion. Because if you are a Christian, anything that is not Christian is going to hell. So that means you don't give space to be a human being. And to be a human being is to grow, is to learn, is to have new experiences. But as a Christian, you are like um, narrow-minded in how you view the world. Somebody is either with you or they are against you. But the world is not shaped like that. Even people in Australia, UK, and the US, we have different time zones. That means we are looking at the world. We can't even agree what day is today because they are in a different day, we are in a different day. How can the entire world not not agree that one book is applicable to every facet of life? So when I grew into understanding these differences, I was like, I'm being blinded by choosing to be only one-sided when I could be so many things. I could be a Christian, Muslim, and Jew at the same time, be none of those because every of those things apply to life. At the same time, none of them applies to life. So no one religion really states the the, the story of being a human being. So that is the journey I am in now. I'm trying to understand that if this applies to me at this time, good, I'm going to use it. If it doesn't, I'm not going to stick by it and prevent myself from learning something new. One of the most surreal experiences I had is that before I came to the US, I never knew that Jewish people existed. I knew that they existed in the Bible, but in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we are followers of Christ. When I came to Brooklyn, I saw that there's a big Jewish community. And I'm like, wow, I really blinded myself to seeing this other part of like people that existed in the world. And I also saw that there are Black Jews. And like, I'm like, I want to learn more about the Jewish religion. Like, I attended a synagogue, I had Jewish friends. I have Muslim friends, I have Hindu friends. So I said that one religion cannot really define who I am. If I am part of all these things at the same time, none of them, that is the journey I am on. It's like finding my path and don't define my path based on what my parents have already predestined for me. Um, Jason Reynolds, the author that writes a lot of children's books, is an African-American author. He said that parents, a training that should become leaders. But when their children grow to become leaders, they should note that the children can disrespect them. And if the parents refuse to allow the children to chart their own paths, they can stand to become hypocrites because they were saying as a child, I want you to grow to become a leader. That means charting your own path in life.
1: And, and across all religions, there are some Themes love, community, care, um, righteousness, kindness, right? And those are the things that we want, right? Those to learn how to be those types of people who look after people and don't harbor judgments and resentments and who can give of ourselves freely. But actually, in practice, we, you know, when adhering to um, some religions, we don't actually get to express. Um, the very teachings that that some of those religions espouse. Yeah, I understand that.
0: Yeah, and the religion prevents me from wearing a piercing on my ear if I want to, having a tattoo on my body if I love to have a tattoo on my body, or being nude if I want to. (laughs) It it deprives me of the pleasures of life. And why would I live my life entirely? depriving myself of the pleasures of life, but something I do not know if it will come to pass. It said, the Bible said, God created us in his own image and likeness. That means whoever you are, that is God in your own being. Mm. So God did not say that is this type of person and we should all be this type of person. He said, whoever you are, you are created in my image and likeness. That means If I am doing pornography, that is the image of God in me (laughs) at that time. It has nothing to do with your own belief that you must dress in a certain way. And also in the LGBTQ community, religion kind of predefined gay marriage in a kind of way. Because if you are the good religious person, you behave heteronormatively. Marry a, partner, good a, <laughs> a good white child
1: LGBT person.
0: A good white LGBTQ person. You <laughs> marry. Uh, we have examples all over the society. You get married, you have your children, you go to church on Sunday morning. If you defy any of those, then you're a bad person. You go to hell. Things like that. So we don't want to be defined by only just. Um, gay marriage want to be defined by how we want to define ourselves like a full gender expansive expression of ourselves
1: yeah and i want to go back to pleasure a little bit because i think when you said that i thought of rumi you know the 13th century sufi poet and one of the reasons i love rumi so much is because he for him the erotic and the divine are the same right his poem like this if you ask me Um, how Jesus raised the dead, kiss me on the lips, say it like this, you know, like when someone asks about the aroma of musk, let down your hair, you know, like he, he didn't see a divide between the erotic and the divine. And so much of what we understand about ourselves now is, is devoid of pleasure. And as black people, as displaced people, as people under threat of death and violence, that pursuit of pleasure, of hedonism, of the erotic, feels important too, right? Like we deserve to be pleasured and pleased and to enjoy the fruits of that.
0: Without pleasure, there is no life to live because you are pursuing the box so you can have pleasure. Anything you're doing, like even people that use social media, you gain some kind of pleasure from it. It's the gratification that makes it really worth it. So how can you be a human being that's the pleasures of life and when i mean pleasures of life not financial pleasures like sexual pleasures because human beings are sexual beings and to remove the sexual from us is to remove everything that makes us who we are like we go to the gym to exercise so we can look sexy so that we can be attracted to somebody else we want to make some more money so we can take somebody on a date and make them feel good about us and sweet talk them and all those things. At the end of it, the icing on the cake is all those pleasures that come from it. So I think that that was one of the reasons why religion was hard for me because to say that you shouldn't enjoy the pleasures of life and you should define yourself by an heteronormative, hero-seeking way which doesn't really fit into what life means for me at this point.
1: Busy Being Black will return in just a moment. Lucky Land Casino,
0: asking people, what's the weirdest
1: place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: I'm Josh Rivers, and this is Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with author and activist Adafiak Poro, who has become a beacon of belonging and possibility for displaced people seeking to build new lives. So you're a refugee, and you sought asylum uh, successfully in the United States. I think the date was 2016. Um, and I, I'm fascinated with the idea of America as a place of freedom. I think you will be, too. I think many Black people are. Um, And despite what many more of us now know about, um, from police brutality, the prison industrial complex, the policing of women's bodies, the keeping of children in cages at its borders, America still occupies this exalted place in the minds of others as this place where one goes to get free. What has been your relationship to the idea and the reality of America?
0: Thank you very much. I think that it is very hard for, non, for Americans to conceptualize the importance of what America means outside America. So like my friends in America, sometimes I show them short clips of people outside America talking about America. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that people always dream of like America in such a way like in sex education, like it's a scene. They're like, I'm going to America. And imagine like Europeans with that excitement going to America, it is like triple of that for like Africans, especially West Africans. When I was growing up, I, I saw a lot of media from America that was so to us, like coming to America, is Don Lemon on television. There's a representation of being black, being queer on TV. And like around the street, you see people there, they sign their pants, they're like, I'm like a rapper from Atlanta. People are excited about that uh, understanding of like America being that place of freedom of expression, Wear your clothes how you like. But when I came to America, I got to discover that it is different from what people see outside America than living in America. Living in America, there are two Americas. They are, they are the America for the wealthy, and there's the America for everybody else. But there are safe environments within America that is not really like America, like New York City, where I live, is like a global hub merging everybody together. But the South and the middle of the country is very much like still. 1960 James Baldwin walking through America, fleeing away to Europe to go and resettle. It still feels like that. Yesterday I was speaking to a guy from Georgia, Atlanta, and it was like, wow, I never knew that in New York is just like so free like this. So what I'm trying to say is that it depends on where you stay in America, but even in New York City, I, as an immigrant, have a different experience. So I'm going to break down my experience just to make it plain. In America, to the greater society, I'm an African because I have this accent. To the black community that the greater American society associates me with, I'm West African. To the West Africans, I'm gay. To the gays, I'm refugee. To the refugee, I am of a different social class. So I have seen my journey through America that I am always something other than the person I am right in front of the person I'm speaking with. So my experience of being in America is that America is glorified from the outside, but on the inside America faces the struggle that every other country on earth faces. Economic hardship, struggle of identity, the complexity of being a black, gay person and a refugee accumulate to make it even harder to break the glass ceiling. The only difference between America and most other countries in the world is that it is very, very uncommon for somebody to be completely destitute from the society because there are forms of social support like food stamp housing support in New York City, but in other parts of the country, you will see like, people really being poor. So I think that America is a segregated country, that different parts of the country are still segregated. We're not segregated by color only, but we're segregated by different factors within the society, so it, be its race, be it socioeconomic class, be it a host of different factors that classifies you in a different part of American
1: society. Mm. I I did a series of conversations last year for the European Cultural Foundation and we were exploring queer black solidarity in Europe during COVID-19. And what emerged out of the research that I was doing and the kind of preliminary conversations I was having at the time was that you couldn't talk about a European for queer black people we couldn't talk about Europe without also talking about refugees and asylum seekers we couldn't also talk about how Europe stops literally at its borders like there's a cliff edge um, for people who are not deemed worthy valuable etc largely black and brown people and indeed for and when those people do cross over into the borders the assimilation is merely impossible um and I You know, we're talking now about what we're seeing now in America, and I want to ask you this specifically because of the work that you do, but we're seeing a conversation in America now about Haitians, and about Afghans, and about refugees more broadly. I mean, how do you, how do you characterize, or how do you help us understand the different contours of this conversation around what it means to be a refugee, what it means to, or a displaced person and and going and seeking asylum in the US.
0: I feel like you, the question really open it up for this kind of nuance of conversation is that, America has always been seen as a country that welcomes immigrants to our shores. That is what has defined America in the public perception. But if you look down into the history of America, America immigration system have always been protected according to white nationalistic values of America wants to welcome Americans. That is history of America immigration has been guarded by race and segregation. The first immigration law that was ever passed in America is called the Chinese Worker Exclusion Act to prevent Asians from coming into the countries to take manufacturing jobs because they saw so that the Asians were working and they were filling job spaces within America. That is what brings this Trumpism that says that we want to take back our country is looking back into laws that have been passed in America. In 1980, During the Reagan administration, Cuban and Asian migrants were coming to American borders due to crises that were happening in their country. And Reagan passed a law, which is a war on drugs. But quote unquote, the war on drugs was to prevent black and brown brown migrants from coming into America. That led to the expansion of incarceration of migrants in detention centers. The Reagan administration detained these Cuban and Asian migrants in the so-called detention center. Over the years, that law that was passed in 1980 to expand detention center has now made the US the largest mass incarcerator of migrants in the world. And the majority of those migrants are black and brown. Today in the US, It has reduced, but during the Trump administration, 54,000 migrants have to be detained each day according to federal law. And I was a victim of that system. So as an asylum seeker, I saw the US as a country that is welcoming, especially as a gay person. So when I came to the border, I sought asylum. They said to me, we don't have anywhere to keep you. We're going to take you to a detention center. And when I was in the detention center, I discovered that I couldn't have like the two thousand four hundred calories meal a day, and I worked in the detention center for a dollar a day, thirty days to make thirty dollars so it's just like a modern day enslavement of black and brown people by this so called detention system and when Trump became president, he increased the amount of immigrants that are detained It used to be thirty four thousand increase it to 54,000, adding an additional 20,000 beds. And this is the most crazy part, is that each of these migrants in the detention center, it costs $210 per day to detain a person, times 54,000. It's a prison industrial complex, that is sponsored by white nationalists. Because those detention centers, they are run by private prisons that trade on the New York stock exchange market. That means rich people are benefiting from the pain and trauma of black and brown people that are being detained by this prison industrial complex for asylum seekers. So there were rally around the country that the detention and incarceration of immigrants is wrong that they should change the system, quote unquote, then the COVID crisis. So when the COVID crisis came, the Trump administration who have been trying to build a wall to prevent migrants from coming into the country now passed a law that is called Title 42. So what Title 42 does is that it's a health mandate that prevents people who might pose risks to citizens of a country from coming into the country. So from the US-Mexico border, if you come into the border, you are being returned back to your country of origin without the due process of seeking asylum, which is a federal law that was passed in the US in 1980 by the US Congress. So Title 42 is quote unquote, a white nationalist protectionist law that says that if the majority of people that are coming through our southern border are latin americans they are asians they are black people we can use that effectively to control the amount of whiteness we have as a population
1: i'm thinking now of how those that that's only possible because of really well entrenched really well rehearsed ideas of the violent black other right which extends to our brown siblings south of the border
0: yeah so the the statistics is showing that the US population, if they continue at this rate of accepting migrants, by 2050 will be 50% people of color, 50% white. So that instinct to continue to pass such kind of laws is to keep whiteness at a maximum of at least 70% of the US population. So this policing framework, prison industrial, complex and laws and regulations that are being passed at the US border is all, quote unquote, mandates to try and prevent Black and brown people from seeking protection in the United States.
1: And the expansion of the number of refugees, as we've seen um, with Afghan refugees, It serves something, right? That has some sort of utility in either upholding or reinforcing the benevolence of white people, right? Of whiteness.
0: So the the U.S. is experiencing a great labor shortage. Most people in the U.S. don't want to do little jobs. And accepting more refugees, according to the Biden administration, is a way to fill out some of our labor shortage. But the American white population that are against the resettlement of these Afghan refugees, they have a philosophy that Middle Eastern refugees are terrorists. And that's proud out of 9-11, an unknown language have been injected into the American broader society that Islamic speaking people and refugees are terrorists. But according to statistics, the amount of refugees in the American society that have gone on to commit crime or domestic terrorism is less than 0.0000001%. That is less than three out of 100 have gone on to commit one or two crimes. Majority of domestic crime, like gun violence, um, killing of people, is done by white people. But that is the only way they can gather together to fight against the acceptance of refugees, is to name them as others, as terrorists, as anything other than their perception of people who make up of the American society, saving them face of who is worthy to be an American.
1: Mm. You mentioned earlier that, you know, as a gay person specifically looking to America, you saw it as a place of freedom, right? Of, of sexual, perhaps liberation. You didn't say sexual liberation. I'm putting words in your mouth, but is that the general idea?
0: Yeah. So I saw Don Lemon on TV, uh, Richard Quest from CNN business. And I thought that America is accepting of gay people. And I didn't know it was a different landscape.
1: This leads me to my next point. It often feels as if the LGBTQ community writ large hasn't fully cottoned on to the fact that issues impacting refugees and asylum seekers are of grave concern to us, right? Like how a nation treats refugees and asylum seekers, black people, people of color is done in the name of LGBTQ people.
0: Yeah, you know, in America, not just to focus on LGBTQ people, but that we do that, Americans are very narrow-minded about their perception of the world because Americans think that America is the entire world. So for LGBTQ Americans, the idea of liberation, white LGBTQ Americans was gay marriage. So when, they won gay marriage in 2015. A lot of rich gay donors were like, we are done. We have already won equality. But equality for LGBTQ people is when the marginalized members of the LGBTQ community can have those same freedom that the white heteronormative gay people have. And that is where we are lacking. On a very large front, there is very low empathy and compassion for the struggle of Black trans women that are being killed in America, for the struggle of homeless LGBTQ people that are seeking protection in America. There is always a perception that because I have gotten my freedom, then I am done with the struggle. The struggle is over. So I've I don't want to mention name of organization, but I'll just use like a broader example, like HROC, for example. HROC was fighting for gay marriage. They were like, let's not add transgender issues because the broader community would not accept it. It's like too many things at the same time. And now that they have one gay marriage, they're trying to you, signa, with trans issues, but you can't be too trans. I don't know what it means to be too trans. You can't be too flamboyantly gay if you are an LGBTQ refugee. So I think that we need to create a sense of empathy and compassion for the most marginalized in our community and take it upon ourselves like the fight is not yet over until those members of our community have the same rights that we fought for, but not just only gay marriage.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, I had an amazing conversation with a Black trans woman from Venezuela seeking protection in Spain. And she made this brilliant point that her transness, this is uh, your point about the HRC, like her transness is not legible in Europe. She's not seen as, as acceptably trans. And I think of the Enormous implications that has for so many people, right? So she was talking about the kind of institutional institutionalization of an acceptable trans subject, um, which I think is what you're alluding to here. When you you know you can't be too trans, yeah. or as Travis Alabanza says, sometimes trans is the destination, right? It's not the pursuit yeah. of passing or looking like a cis person. Sometimes you just want to show up as as yourself. And the modern LGBTQ liberation movement doesn't make room for those kind of, um, if you will, quote unquote, unfinished trans people.
0: Yeah, there's a perception of what a trans person is. And the reason why this continues to surface is that the white larger gay society that has gained influence do not listen to the other marginalized members of their community when they are trying to be advocates. So they think that because they are gay, that means they are as marginalized as other gay people. Yes. And I think that that's a <laughs> lack of understanding they have.
1: Yeah. Um, and your work, I'd love to talk about through talent beyond boundaries. You help create pathways into employment for displaced people and this carries with it the siren song of inclusion. To your mind, how are conversations about workplace inclusion and diversity interacting with or coming up against the experiences of those who have been displaced?
0: I think it's the same pathway, is that there's always this assessment of organization readiness. Are we ready to bring in somebody that doesn't look like us this is the toughest conversation because diversity is just an head count. There's another Black person, there's another refugee within the organization. But the inclusion is diversity is being invited to a party, but inclusion is being asked to dance. Venus Myers, PP of Diversity and Inclusion for Netflix, she gave that great quote. But that is very important is that when you employ a diverse candidate, the organization has to be ready to know that. This refugee might be coming from a country that uses strong spices and ingredients. And when they are cooking in the kitchen, using the microwave, it will smell very strong because it's from Pakistan or Nigeria or Zongbano. And your white food is tasteless and odorless and like the ingredients are not strong. And you'll be like, every time it have a in the kitchen, oh my God, it's smelling all the time that is being insensitive to the person. So for you to be able to get to the stage of like employing people that don't look like people in your organization, their processes and organization have to go through. It's like doing organization readiness, doing bias training, also you know, code switching, You have to make people understand that you don't want these new employees to be cold switching to your organization standard. So when they do something that is not the traditional professional way of white people within the organization wearing suits and sitting in a particular place are doing things or not being too loud or laughing in the kitchen or making a phone call is acceptable. It doesn't mean that because it's the way we have been doing it, makes it the right way. It just means that only this group of people have been in the organization for a long time. So I think that for us to be able to be inclusive of people, we have to be able to be ready, understand our biases, and create room for other type of people to exist within the organization.
1: The word that's bouncing around in my head now is belonging. Right. And we we sometimes hear the phrases all together, diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, you know, they kind of all kind of mesh together. But for me, it feels like belonging is the goal. the goal. But where do you think belonging feels will, fits within the kind of ecosystem? Because, you know, diversity and inclusion is also an industrial complex at this stage, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, <laughs> where where does where does and, and it feels particularly salient, right? That you've got uh, in a conversation about refugees and asylum seekers or displaced people, this sense of belonging feels really important, right? That
0: I, I agree with yeah. you. So diversity and inclusion was like the buzzword during the George Floyd murder. They're employing blacks, black DEI reps in the organization, chief diversity officer. For once, yeah. <laughs> <Continue> <laughs> the organization. Yeah. <laughs> but diversity and inclusion is a metric the organization can measure, but belonging is how the employee feels about its place in the organization. And belonging cannot be measured by the employer, it's measured by the individual. That is why it's very important to go through that next step of sitting with employees to ask them, how do you feel about what we are doing within the organization? Because sometimes it's like virtue signaling to bring black people and make them head of the initiative, but not giving them extra compensation for the extra work that they are doing and not gaining visibility when the report comes out to be posted to the SEC, their name do not appear in the quarterly report. So belonging is, I as the employee feel like I am included and I belong to this community. So that is the goal the organization, it's like the icing on the cake where the organization is trying to get to, to replace whereby they don't have to say that we have diversity inclusion initiative, but to replace where an employee is talking to their friend and they say like, Oh, I really feel like I belong to this community at my workplace. We spend a third of our life in our workplace. So if we don't belong, I don't know. It's like sleeping and having a neck pain all the time. You're still having that neck pain. Something is happening.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that we're also talking about this within, you know, Part of the reason we have part of the reason people are displaced or become refugees and asylum seekers is because of imperialist activities, which fuels capitalist expansion, and so I'm very cognizant that some of our listeners will be thinking about uh, that frame will be thinking through that framework. And then belonging becomes even more important because yes, we're not trying to, we're not talking about refugees and asylum seekers and displaced people trying to take the system down. We're trying to get them from one place to another and to be able to survive and thrive in that place. Um, we're almost out of time, and the question I really want to ask you because I think it's a fascinating, it's fascinating how people become black. Um, there's a filmmaker, Shakith who has an incredible short film, hashtag black men dream, in which he asks his subjects, when did you become a black man? How might you begin to answer that
0: question? Hmm. This is a very tough question because I feel like I know I'm still uncovering my blackness. Sometimes I'm afraid of the true and the fullness of what it means to be a black man. And sometimes I shy away from that and accept the industrial capitalism complex of an ID black man, which is someone who is not disruptive to the system, who's like someone who can listen to instruction. And I'm trying to uncover the authenticness of what it means to be a black man, and exist in a world that does not fit into that identity. So I'm struggling with my Blackness in some way that I've not fully stepped into what it means to be a Black person. But I discovered I'm a Black man when I came to the US. And it's a different experience for me because I migrated from a majority Black country into a minority Black country. So I am still trying to be connected to the roots of what it means to be a Black person that accepts the full responsibility of my Blackness everywhere I find myself in. And I'm yet to really step into the fullness of my Blackness. But I discover my Blackness here in America, and it's like peeling a fruit. Every layer I peel the more I genuinely want to step into that blackness. But the definition of a black man in America is quote unquote, someone who is disruptive to the society. And how do you mesh that with a system that wants you to succumb to it? So it's very hard for me to realize who I am as a black person in America, but I'm trying to be a better representation of that Blackness every single day.
1: I really appreciate the vulnerability and the honesty of that response. Thank you. That's really beautiful. To close, I ask all of my guests the same
0: question. What do you hope for? Yeah, this is a very tough question. If I didn't have hope, for a better future, I wouldn't be involved in the work I am doing. So I believe that every generation have a responsibility on their back. And I recognize and acknowledge that there was a generation before me that made it possible for me to be a black gay man in America. During the 1960s, before the civil rights legislation, I couldn't be who I am today. Someone that I have a space and a voice in the society which lead to or no support from any major backing. So I want to be that representation to the next generation and also to leave a walk behind so that they can be able to step on our shoulders and know that people before them fought for them as hard as we can so that they can go further with little or no obstacle to their future. The ability for them to dream and believe that it is possible just like every other child can dream and believe that it is possible. That is the hope I have for not just myself, but for the generation that will come before me to know that it is possible to be a black person, a gay person, a refugee, a displaced person, and still dream and have aspiration to build in building a life and experiencing joy in doing so.
1: And, and pleasure.
0: And pleasure. <laughs>
1: and uh, thank you so much not only for the work that you do um, and for the life that you live but for coming on the show and and showing me such graciousness i'm really grateful for you
0: thank you very much josh i respect you i'm grateful that there's a space for black people to be able to be ourselves and talk about things that are us, because i feel like that is what community is all about is being our brother's keeper
1: Adafiak Poro is an author and activist. He currently serves as the mobilization director at Talent Beyond Boundaries, and in 2022, Simon & Schuster will publish Adafi's first book, Asylum, A Memoir and Manifesto. He's among the inaugural winners of the David Prize, which is modeled on the MacArthur Genius Grant and celebrates individuals and ideas that create a better, brighter New York City. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so busy.
0: Ah. Yeah, I'm busy.